All right, friend number three, so far. Can't get any worse, right? I mean, Eliphaz, Bildad, this wasn't exactly the A-team that we were dealing with. So this is friend number three, and this is his first speech, and there's these are cycles of speeches, remember? So we'll go back to the other friends and hear from them again, and we'll hear from Zophar again. That's why I call this Zophar 1. And let's think for a minute before we dig into uh, chapter 11, which is Zophar's speech, about how we got here, and a little bit about kind of the MO of each friend, because the scripture gives these three friends, and there are similarities in what they say, but there's also differences. And so it stands to reason that there's something in the differences. There's something that God intends us to pay attention to in the unique aspects of each man's arguments. So Eliphaz, uh, do you remember what he appealed to when he said, the reason you should believe me is? Do you remember what the answer to that was, what Eliphaz says? His was the private revelation. God told me. God said to me. Um, and so he started with sympathy and you're in a real mess here. And I know you're a pretty good guy, but God told me. And, and so he ends up thinking, well, Job has this kind of small sin, the kind of sins that are common to mankind. Nobody's perfect. And Job needs to acknowledge that sin and repent of it. And then this, this calamity will go away from him if he'll just acknowledge and repent of that. So he starts with sympathy. He ends with a little less. He takes some, some kind of cheap shots. But his general MO is, I, I see why you're upset, but God revealed to me that everybody's a sinner and God's holy and you just need to sort that out and then things will be okay. Then we get Bildad. Do you remember what Bildad appealed to? The reason why Bildad should be believed? He was a student of theological history. He appeals to history and tradition. Look at what God has done in the past. Look at these wicked people in the past who've been punished. And look at these righteous people in the past who have been blessed. And so he has no sympathy for Job because he says you're in the category of the being punished, which means you're in the category of the sinner. And unlike Eliphaz, Eliphaz is really inconsistent in that he says that he thinks Job is guilty of this small sin, this kind of sin that's common to ordinary believers, but look at the calamity in Job's life. It is monumental. And Bildad's at least consistent. He says, look, with this type of calamity, there's some real sin here that you're refusing to admit. There's something extreme because this suffering is extreme. And so you need to repent of this sin or you'll end up like your kids and your kids are dead because their sin was even worse than yours. So if you don't want to end up like your kids, then you better get this right and repent. This is great. We're just, this is all going really well. And so we've seen why Job's tendency is to respond to his friends for a moment about his innocence and then to kind of turn his attention away from his friends and to really talk to God instead. <laughs> There's not a lot of progress that's going to be made with Tweedledum and Tweedledee. So now we move on to Zophar. And Job has maintained his innocence with both friends. And the immediate context, what we just came out of in 9 and 10, remember, was Job longing for his day in court. What Job wanted was to drag God into court and to present his case because he knows that he is blameless in this instance. And he knows that if his case could be made before God, God would be forced to see that Job is justified and God would have to relent of this disaster. But then Job thinks through all the reasons why that would never happen. God is, is too big to have to deal with a, a puny thing like me. God is too perfect to put up with my nonsense. God is invisible. It's not like I can pin him down and make him come. And what Job really needs is a mediator. He said, if I could get a mediator, this whole problem would be solved. Somebody who understood God and understood me. Somebody who had the, the holiness and the, the, the ability to actually stand before God and somebody who had suffered and understood where I was coming from. And then Job says, no, nah, that's nonsense. That's never going to happen. And so he moves on to sort of his, his heartbroken rant about his calamity, his situation. And one of the distinctions we made over the last couple weeks that will be really important to keep in mind for Zophar's speech 
is remember, we talked about the difference between the heart of faith. That's what we believe. That's orthodoxy. That's what's true about God. What we know is true is the heart of faith. God has given us the conviction that these facts are true. Who God is, what he's done, what he will do. But there's a distinction between that and the voice of our circumstances, or I'm going to say that even the voice of suffering when we're talking about bad circumstances. But it's the voice of our circumstances. It's our, our visceral response to what we're seeing and what we're experiencing and what we're living with. And you don't go to the voice of suffering for an orthodox statement of faith. Inside of the same person can be both the heart of faith, the knowledge of what is true about God, and this voice of their circumstances, which says crazy stuff, stuff that isn't true, stuff that comes from the cry of pain, the lens that Job is experiencing. So let's see what Zophar says. Um, his point his sort of baseline position is that Job is a great sinner. Who's got 11, 1 through 6? Is that Noah? And so far, the Naamathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go and answer, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and he, that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know that know then that God exacts of you less than you know it deserves. Uh, side point: There's some good uh, language in here we could learn that uh, is is helpful because he has four different ways of telling Job to shut up, but don't say shut up. <laughs> he uses four different expressions for basically you need to shut up and stop talking, and you need to listen to me. Zophar is clearly angry. He goes on the attack against Job. He disagrees with me, what I've been saying for weeks. And he thinks that Job has sinned in the things that Job is saying, especially about God. In the way that Job has responded to the other two friends, uh, Zophar's just been sitting there listening, and, and the anger has been building that Job continues to insist on his innocence. He's challenging God's own morality, is what Zophar thinks. And he believes that God needs Zophar to stand up and defend him. And that's what he's going to do. The language he uses, he picks up, he's obviously been listening to Joe because he picks up on this courtroom language. And he says, if God gave you this trial, this hearing that you're looking for, do you know what would happen? You would be destroyed. God would utterly silence you. Be careful what you wish for, Job. Uh, Ash, in the book that we're using, Christopher Ash says, someone needs to shame Job, that's verse three, into admitting that he's wrong. And Zophar thinks he's just the man to do it. Somebody's going to have to stand up to you and show you what you don't see. And again, Zophar's speech, as much as if not more than the others, is going to be a real test for us of the things that he says and the things that he thinks need to be done are not wrong always. What gets so far on the bad side of, of this transaction is that he doesn't have the facts right. He's wrong about the situation. And so his application of what needs to be done, God's honor needs to be defended against your words. You need to shut up and, and repent and stop uh, promoting your innocence. He's wrong. Are there times when someone needs to be, I'm going to say, yelled at to gain self-awareness about their sin? Yeah. Have y'all read Isaiah? <laughs> it's, it's what we're doing in, the, in there, right? It is absolutely the case that 
people of God have to use very strong language with one another from time to time to try and show someone their sin that they're overlooking. It's not that this thing Zophar does is always wrong. It's that he's wrong about this situation. He's wrong about the facts. Job is right that if he got his hearing with God, he would be justified. Zophar thinks it's just the opposite, that the facts don't justify Job. In fact, they condemn him. And so he says, you fool, asking for a trial, that's going to be terrible for you. Have you no shame? Well, then let me shame you into seeing your own sin. So Zophar's case, I said that Eliphaz's case was based on private revelations that he claimed he had from God. Bildad's case was based on history and tradition. Can you see from this what Zophar's case is based on? It's a little tricky until I tell you, then it'll be obvious. I can tell you what he thinks it's based on, which is just a tweak away from what it's actually based on. What he thinks his case is based on is Job's own words. What Zophar refers back to are the things that he's claiming Job has said. You say you're blameless. You say you're innocent. You say that you don't deserve this. He's, he's throwing Job's own words back in his face, except he's actually not. And there's a really important lesson in here for us, because his case isn't based on Job's words. It's based on a twisting of Job's words. He takes what Job says and casts it in the worst light possible and then reflects it back to Job, even twisted from there. And I know we cannot imagine what sort of abominable person would ever do this. We have never had someone say something to us that we chose to take in an offensive way. And when we repeat it back to them, we make a slight tweak to what was said to make it clear how offensive that was. Right? We all do this. We all know what this is like. And this is what Zophar is doing. He's making a case based on the, the worst, least gracious possible interpretation of everything that Job has said. And then he says, here, this is what you did. So look at verse, uh, the beginning of verse 4. He accuses Job of saying what? What's at the beginning of verse 4? My doctrine is pure. It's not a trick question. He accuses him of saying, my doctrine is pure. Did Job ever say that? Did Job ever claim infallibility? That's what that statement is. My doctrine is pure, is that I am infallible. My understanding and my interpretation of things are infallible. Is that what Job said? No, he just said he's innocent. He said he didn't do something for which this would be the reasonable and just consequence. And that's why I say on further analysis, this distinction is so important. And it's clear that Job was able to acknowledge this distinction and Zophar was not. And so Zophar treats Job's voice of suffering, the cries of his circumstances, he treats that as Job's heart of faith, as Job's doctrinal dissertation. He, he treats what Job says in his cries of pain as if Job is trying to write a systematic theology textbook and explain God as he actually is. And that's not what Job was doing at all. Job was crying out in pain. Then look at uh, 4b, and this one... This accusation it all hinges on sort of one word and what it means, especially in the Hebrew. But what does he accuse Job of in the second part of verse 4? He's clean in God's eyes. I am clean in God's eyes. And this might seem a little pedantic for us because in English it's not such a big deal. But in Hebrew there is a huge difference between blameless, which Job has said that he is. Blameless is not moral perfection. Blameless is justified given this current circumstance. I did not do the thing that deserves this response. Clean in God's eyes is sinless. Clean in God's eyes is I'm, I'm morally perfect. I'm morally pure. And so Zophar says, you have claimed that you are sinless. 
But that's not what Job's claim was. Job's claim, and granted, when his claim came out of the voice of suffering from his pain and his circumstances, he was adamant and loud about it and made us a little uncomfortable with how much Job is insisting on his blamelessness. And we say, whoa, Job, nobody's perfect. But Job's not saying I'm perfect. He is saying, if you're trying to draw a straight line between what I've done and this result, you will not find that they're connected. There is a disconnect. And remember, the editor of Job, the narrator, and God himself agree with that point. That's why chapter one begins with such a strong emphasis that Job is a good man. He's a good man who's getting great results. And the fact that he's now getting bad results doesn't change the fact that God and the narrator have said Job is a good man. And so Zophar says, you've said that you're sinless. And Job did not say that. He said he was blameless. He's using the language that he's innocent of particular accusations. The things that his friends are accusing him of, he is blameless with regards to those. He is innocent of those charges. Uh, Derek Thomas says, Zophar failed to observe one of the cardinal rules of counseling. He failed to listen to the one who was hurting. And by putting words into Job's mouth, Zophar only added to the frustration and pain. Haven't you experienced that? Probably on both sides of it. Where somebody is comforting you and they're not actually comforting you. They're comforting some imaginary version of you that they fabricated because they haven't listened to you carefully enough to understand what's hurting or what the problem is or what the circumstances are. And we've done that with others as well. When we listen to people talk, sometimes we are so busy formulating our response, we're not even hearing what they're saying. And that's what Zophar did. He doesn't hear what Job says. Oh, I heard you. I heard every word you say. I'll quote them back to you. You said that you were morally pure, and you said your doctrine was perfect. I heard it. Oh, Don't you kind of think that um, in a situation like this, so far as looking, we all do this, we're looking for an answer. Make this go away. We have to come up with some reason, right? And yeah. Stuff. And so getting angry, a lot of times you get angry, right? You know, because you don't have an answer, right? And it's frustrating. You don't really know what to say. And so yep. you get angry and then you, you know, come up with these things in your head that weren't actually what was happening. Yeah, right, like you only need to fix it. I fix it if I think you have been sinned terribly, right? Then it warrants this. And anger is often in dialogue Anger is a, an attempt to short circuit the discussion so that I'm going to say what I say. I'm going to say it in anger to try and prevent you from responding. Because if we actually had to dig into, if Job had made his case with Zophar, well, I'm sorry, Zophar, I'm sorry that I gave you the impression. That's what I said. That's not actually what I meant at all. What I meant was I'm innocent with regards to these charges and what I know to be true about God in the heart of faith is difficult to reconcile with what I'm experiencing in light of my suffering. But thank you for drawing to my attention that I didn't speak clearly on this issue, right? How would that, is that what Zophar wants? No, Zophar wants Job to shut up. He said it four times. He does not want to engage with Job to try and figure this out. He wants to categorize it, stamp it, move it on. Um, so what does Zophar do? What, what, what does he do at the end of this, at the end of 6b? If you really want to shut down the dialogue and you're this angry, look at what he says at the end of verse 6. You're getting better than you deserve. <laughs> Not only could it be worse, it, if you were getting what was fair, it would be worse. If God actually treated you according to what you deserve, it would be worse than this. Like part of the whole point of Job 1 setting up these particular calamities is you're not allowed to say there could be anything worse. There, there's nothing left, you guys. Everyone he loves is dead or walked away from him or lecturing him about this stuff. You know, he has nothing. He's in physical peril. He's like he is. There is nothing left. That's what I was thinking when he said that it can 
get you know we could be worse than thinking what because the only thing would be death. He wants death. He wants death. Right? He wants death. Yeah. yeah, you can't say it could be worse when the guy is saying, "Please come for me, death." It's like how do you go from rock bottom to more bottom, extra extra bottom? <laughs> so Zophar doubles down, and again, there's just so many good lessons here in what what Zophar's doing. For those of us, yeah, well, sorry, so many bad lessons here in what Zophar is doing. The twisting of words. The adding of anger, the cutting off the dialogue, the sort of flip it, it could be worse. He's not listening. And we're just going to go back time and time again throughout all of these speeches to that idea from the very beginning that if the purpose of comfort, what is the goal of comfort? It's to take someone from where they are and to get them over to where they ought to be and can be in the hope of Christ. The goal is to move someone from there to here. You cannot give someone a map of how to get here if you don't understand where they started. It can't be done. You have to be aware of where they are, where they're coming from. And then you can see clearly to remove the speck from their eye. See what I did there? So we have to start with listening, really listening, not pretend listening. Ash says that Zophar displays both cruelty and arrogance. And here's, here's what he means. Zophar says that Job's defiant, insufferable arrogance is because Job refuses to recognize that God's wisdom is secret and cannot be grasped by mere mortals like Job. That's what Zophar is so angry about, he says. But what is Zophar, when Zophar says, given what you've done, it could be worse and should be worse, what is Zophar really saying? He's saying, you can't know the wisdom of God, but I do. But I do. That's the arrogance of it, is when you're trying to get somebody to see that God's ways are not our ways and that his thinking is, is beyond ours and not something that is to be fully grasped by mortals. But the way that you communicate that is because I grasp it and you don't. It's a rather self-defeating argument. It's not God is transcendent. It's you're dumb and sinful, but I'm pretty good. And that's Zophar's argument. Job, you're dumb and sinful. I'm pretty good. And I wonder why Job is not comforted by this particular speech. So then, in glorious, reformed, cage-stage, Presbyterian fashion, Zophar goes into verses 7 through 12. Nathan, do you have that? Um, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Is it higher? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than shale. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men, and he sees it iniquity. Will he not consider it? A stupid man will get understanding, but a wild donkey's colt is born a man. He writes a poem, a beautiful, theologically accurate hymn about the sovereign wisdom of God. <laughs> he comes off of this interaction with Job and trying to help Job become as wise as he is. And so he writes a poem. He writes a hymn for Job to hear. Maybe this will help. Derek Thomas says there's three points in the hymn. God's wisdom and sovereignty are limitless. That's verses eight and nine. God's wisdom and sovereignty ensure that justice will be done. That's verses 11 or 10 and 11. And God's wisdom and sovereignty are beyond human comprehension. That's 11 and 12. Once again, we are given theological truth from one of Job's friends. 
these words are true. We could put this hymn in our hymnal. We'd all chuckle at the, the part about the dumb thing at the end, right? But the words are true. This is orthodoxy. Uh, who's got, is Kate, Romans 11, 33? Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Isn't that what Zophar just said? That's, that's what Zophar just said in his hymn. Paul says it in the New Testament. We love it. This is beautiful. This is theologically rich. But Zophar said the same thing. And we say, you jerk. Why do we say that? Why does it fall so flat? Context. Context really matters, doesn't it? So let me let me quote several. I got four quotes in a row from four different people because everybody has a great take on what happens here. Christopher Ash says, the same concepts and remarkably similar words may have different implications and alternative meanings depending on the context in which they're spoken. Context matters. Where the sufferer is matters in regards to what you say, even if what you say is theologically true. George Phillips says, there may be some truth in Zophar's sermon to Job, but there is certainly no humanity in it. Oh, that keeps you right in the... Uh, Meredith Klein, Meredith is a dude. Meredith Klein says, he would have made better use of his excellent doctrine if he had humbly recognized the limitations of his own knowledge of divine providence and had not presumed to understand Job's sufferings to perfection. The idea, Job, you can't understand these sufferings, but I can. <laughs> oh, the arrogance. And then Derek Thomas. In the end, pain is perfectly compatible with God's promise to bless his children. What Zophar failed to do was to implement his own doctrine. For if God is truly beyond our understanding, we're forced to concede that there may well be reasons for suffering other than those which we can perceive. That's, I mean, that's the heart of the whole thing, isn't it? And that's really going to be a nice tie-in to the Isaiah passage this morning, is there has, God is saying something through suffering. He's saying something. What he's saying and to whom he's saying it can be hard to discern and we admit that we're the first to admit that when we're the ones suffering but the moment somebody else is suffering we become quite confident we know what God is saying through it and that's what so far did here yes God's incomprehensible but this one's easy to let me let me explain it to you let me let me help you get your head right um, and again, he's just so mad, that comment about the lack of humanity in what Zophar says. He takes these cheap shots. You know, verse 10, you want a courtroom with Job? It'll be your last stand. It'll be the last free day you ever have, the day you ask God to show up in court and talk about these charges. Verse 12, he calls him an empty-headed ass. It's, a, it's an ad hominem attack, right? It's the idea of, not only will I defeat you on the facts, Job, but I will attack your person because this cannot stand. But Zophar is not completely heartless. Yes, he is. That's sarcastic. He, he's going to make Job an offer of how to get out of this pickle and how to make things right. So who's got 13 through 20? Can I give that to anybody? Sounds like I would fail to do. Somebody, uh, Megan, will you read 13 through 20? If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery, and you will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them and their hope is to breathe their last. 
So he starts 13 and 14. What ought Job to do? Repent, Job. There's a way out of this. Repent, prepare your heart for God and stretch out your hand toward him. What Zophar is saying here is almost exactly what I'm going to say to you about the sermon from Isaiah. That Isaiah said to the people of Judah, your pride, your insistent insistence that your way is right does not leave room for the Holy Spirit to purify your heart and actually make you righteous before God. Those are incompatible. And so the work that you have to do, which we can only do by the grace of God, but the work that we have to do is sort of this clearing out room in our heart for the Spirit to come do His work. The laying down of our pride, the falling down on our faces before God, going to the foot of the cross, however you want to say it. That recognition that we are not the answer, we are the problem, that's what creates, to speak uncarefully, the room for the Holy Spirit to do the work of redemption. That's what Zophar is saying here. And that's exactly what Isaiah is going to say to Judah. That's what I'm going to say to you. So what's wrong with it? Context. <laughs> Context. So let's set aside what's wrong with it for a minute and look at what's, what's right about it, which is that he's telling Job, he's telling the wrong person, but he's telling the person complaining about their suffering that he thinks is because of sin to have real sorrow. He starts with the heart. Prepare your heart. Don't just, don't just go through the motions of repentance. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, there's a great line, the sorrow of hypocrites is in their faces. See what he means by that? Where are hypocrites sorry? On the outside. They're sorry in a way for people to see. They make a display of sorrow. They rend their garments, not their hearts. And what Zophar is saying is, you've got to rend your heart. Godly sorrow goes to the heart, not, as Watson says, a sour face that never goes any farther. Well, somebody flipped an axe, uh, Lauren, will you get to Acts 2, 37? Watson also said, as, I love this line, as the heart bears the chief part in sinning, so it must in sorrowing. Your heart was all in on this sin, so it can't be absent from the repentance. The sin was about the heart, and the repentance has to be about the heart. Or when you Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That is what awareness of sin ought to do to us. Cut us to the heart so that we then ask, what do we do? That's what Isaiah is trying to get people of Judah to do. They're not even asking, what do we do? Because they think they're doing just fine. He says, oh, God's going to have to make it really, really bad for you people, for you to look up and say, what do we do? And so he will, because God will redeem his people with or mostly without their help. Uh, he says in verse 14, once you have repented, then what do you need to do? Stop sinning. Yeah, stop sinning. Turn away from the kind of sin that you were participating in and hiding before. And there's a real barb of an accusation here in the Hebrew because the word that he uses is for a kind of like covert sort of extortion. And so what he's implying is that Job's wealth was ill-gotten gain in the first place. That Job had accumulated all of this greatness through sinful means. And that's why God took it all away from him. And Job needs to stop sinning and repent of what he had done sincerely. And all of that is really biblical. <laughs> it's all really, really biblical. What, what messes it up is not 
what Zophar says. It's the context in which he says it. He says it to the wrong person in the wrong moment. He says it from the position of haughtiness. I understand and you don't. This is the challenge of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, where, you know, how do Christians reconcile this idea that on the one hand, we have Jesus preaching this sermon where he says, unbelievers favorite Bible verse, which is what? Come on. Unbelievers have one favorite Bible Judge verse. Not, judge not lest ye be judged. How do Christians reconcile the fact that we have Jesus saying, judge not lest ye be judged with an entire New Testament, especially Jesus in the Gospels, where he's walking around judging everybody. And in fact, a few verses after judge not lest ye be judged, he says, you will know true teachers from false teachers by what? Judging their fruit. How do we reconcile that? And you look at what Jesus says, and he's saying this sort of judgment that comes from a position of haughtiness, my standard, my analysis of the facts, my declaration of what is right and wrong, that's the kind of judging that God says, judge not lest ye be judged, because you don't want to be judged by your own standard. And if God judges you by God's standard, you don't come looking out so good. So don't do that. By the same token, we are to judge. We are to discern. We're to make observations, statements, and decisions based on those observations, based on God's standard and what's right and wrong. And that has to be done with great humility. He's God and we're not. He's infallible and we're very fallible. We have to hold these judgments rather loosely, don't we? Is there a word, is it judge in Hebrew a different, I mean, interpretation? We think of judge in the English language. It's the same. The, 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 I guess the closest, if you wanted to, if you wanted to tweak it just to avoid distinction, the, you could say condemn not. But even then, it has to be more complicated. Okay, yeah. Because God does tell us to evaluate things by their fruit. Right. He set the plumb line of what's right and wrong, the standard of true and false. And we're to look at everything else we encounter and measure it against that standard. The very act of measuring it against the standard and saying, on the basis of God's standard, that is right or that is wrong, that is judgment. That's what judgment is. What God is saying is when you make that kind of judgments, it better be his plumb line and not yours. And it better be made by people who recognize all the ways that they don't measure up to the plumb line. That, that's the part that Matthew 5 through 7 is, is really getting at, um, and, and Christ in other places too. So is it like you said before, discernment versus condemnation? I mean, the tough, the reason I backed off of condemnation is some people would say that even if you say this isn't God's best for you, you're allowed to go that far making a judgment. You're not allowed to say commitment to that path leads to eternal damnation. You can't say that they're in hell, but I'm not putting them in hell. Yeah, yeah. What I'm doing is saying True. God set a standard right. and he tells us the conditions for inheriting the kingdom of life. In my analysis, fallible human analysis, but in my analysis, what you're doing, what you're committed to, doesn't line up with that standard. I mean, that's what church discipline is. Church discipline is saying, you believe that you're a Christian. And when you joined this church, this church said, you are a Christian. You are right to believe that. We made a judgment based on your profession of faith. That's what we did. Now we're making another judgment, which is that your behavior, not your sin, your refusal to repent of sin, is not consistent with being a Christian. And if you do not repent, if you show that your ultimate commitment is not to God in repentance, but is to self, Nobody tells me what to do. Then the church has a responsibility to make a judgment, not we're sending you to hell because we're the church and have that power. I don't have that power. The church has the power to do one thing, which is to tell you 
you're not a Christian. That's a massive amount of power. Jesus refers to it as the keys to the kingdom. It is a massive for the church to tell an individual believer you're not actually a believer. Whew, that is heavy, weighty stuff. But it has to be done. But isn't the majority of Job about searching for congruity? Like congruity with truth and orthodoxy and belief and application and all that. But then, but then after you've looked for this congruity, which we're all to do as spiritually mature Christians, we're wanting our lives to be congruent with what we say we believe and what scripture teaches. But then at the end of the day and at the end of Job, basically he says, if it's not congruent, it's because God's bigger than us. So at the end of the day, we can't get ultimate congruity. In this life. In this life. In this world. Yes. Yes. It's that God, and there's a, I don't want to steal from the sermon. There's a great quote about this near the end of the sermon. We look at good. Shouldn't good, Job, do good, believe good, say good, pray good, sacrifice good. Job is a good man. I can't say that enough. Shouldn't good get great Happy family, happy marriage, nice stuff, good job. Shouldn't good get great? And God's answer is yes. And then Job says, bah. and so all the not good that is is a is an in between. It's it's an in between. And and what Zophar wants to argue, and in fact I'll get to this in just a second, is that it's it should be an immediate. Good should get great now. Every time, instantly. Just like bad should get punishment. Every time, instantly, now. Otherwise, God is not just. And that's the part where God says, no, there's actually a gap that you can't see into. You know, in, in, in philosophy and in logic, you know, you make statements where you say, well, A is true and B is true, therefore C. And you just, you follow it step to step to step. And God says, when you try to do that on my justice and this principle of good getting great in this world, there's a line of that that you can't see. And that's back to a couple chapters ago. Even if I wrote it down for you, you wouldn't understand it. Even if I told you what the gap is between what you think ought to be and what I know ought to be, you wouldn't understand it. And Hebrews says some people won't get it in this life. That's right. And, and I am hesitant to suggest that we will get all of it in the world that is to come. Because part of it, I think to Fagan's point a couple weeks ago, we have finite minds. We will be morally perfect in the new heavens and the new earth. We will have new bodies. We will know more than we know now, but we will not be God. We will still have creature minds, not creator minds. And part of this may just exist in that gulf. It's, it's at least possible. Why were Jesus's strongest words for the Pharisees? But they, hypocrites but they were more righteous than most of the people around them. Pharisees kept more of the law than most of the people around them. True. I mean, he said they piled up heavy burdens for the others that they were supposed to help comfort and get. He made it hard. They made it harder for them. They sort of made themselves out to almost be at God's level in a lot of ways, right? Because their judgment. They were perfect, you know, as close because they followed all these 600 something yeah. laws. I don't know if y'all saw it. This is all hitting on the right stuff. I don't know if y'all saw it in Ash's book, but he says to the casual observer, the Pharisees were the most like Jesus and therefore the most easily confused with him. And the reason that Jesus had the harshest word for the Pharisees was because to the casual observer, to the person who's not really paying attention, they might be led to believe that that is what Jesus wanted. 
because it looks pretty good. It looks pretty devout. It looks pretty religious. It looks pretty righteous. And Jesus was so harsh with them because people were looking to them for guidance and direction. And they were piling up heavy loads. They were leading people astray rather than to God. And that's what Zophar does. That's what Job's comforters do. And that's the danger of being the person who is acting like them. I just wrote this beautiful hymn about the wisdom and majesty of God. And you think I'm the one doing something wrong here? Let's write down every theological claim that I just made. Are any of them false? But you, the sufferer, you're going to come tell me my doctrine is wrong? You see how easy it is to pile up heavy loads and to lead people astray, even with biblical truth. And so this is, this is serious stuff. Um, Zophar is confident that the will of God which is hidden from Job, is visible to him. He can see it and understand it. He doesn't have that disconnect Kathy talked about. It all makes sense in Zophar's worldview. And the only fact that Zophar has to change for his whole worldview to make sense is that Job's lying. And he's not good. Because if Job is not good, then everything Zophar says is right. And that's why when Isaiah says exactly the same stuff to Judah here in a little bit, Isaiah will be right because Judah is in wicked, objective rebellion against God. And so with that fact, Isaiah says exactly the same things and he is exactly right to say them. Zophar's problem is that Job has no secret sins. The Bible told us that in Job 1. He is good. This is not about Job's sin. And then there's a second, and this is really, really important. Can you see from the perspective of the book what God is teaching us through Job? What the book is trying to accomplish? What God is trying to accomplish through Job? Can you identify what would be the really, really big problem if so far we're right? and got his way. God wouldn't be compassionate in the most because this is like totally devoid of compassion. True, but not not the most important. If so far is right, who else is right? Satan. Yeah. If so far is right, Satan is right. Because what did Satan say? Satan says, Job does good only to get great. And what is Zophar's offer? Hey, Job, do good so you get your stuff back. If Zophar is right, if, if Job takes Zophar up on his offer, Satan wins. Satan wins. Zophar really Oh, it's so obvious to him, Pam. It's just obvious what this situation is about. I, he just like he just wants it, like you said, to be a cookie cutter. You've sinned, yeah, so you've been punished, and now if you repent, everything will be okay. And I mean, to say to someone who's lost all that, what he says here, and you'll get up in the morning and the birds will sing, <laughs> and, and, and everything's and, going to be fine. In right? preaching, what we're supposed to do is called exegesis. You go to the text. You exegete, exegesis. What does the text say and teach? And that's what you preach to people. There's a type of preaching called eisegesis, which is you have your own idea and you bring it on top of a text. And you tell people, this is what this text means. Not because it's what it says, but because it's your idea. That's what Zophar does. Zophar has a, a, a cookie cutter, here's how the world works. And he turns... And he stamps it on Job's life, whether it fits or not. Uh, John Calvin, the reformer, had a great line. He says that um, some comforters only know one song and they do not care to whom they sing it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's in a, it fits every circumstance. Only tool you've got is a hammer, however you want to say it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Zophar's one song is immediate retribution that we talked about before. And, and again, the idea of good getting great is a biblical idea. That is things as they ought to be and things as they will be. But the part of, so it doesn't work backwards. You can't look at getting great and say, therefore, righteousness was involved. And you can't look at Job's suffering and, and, and poverty and calamity and say, therefore, sin was, in, was involved. Except the times when you can. And this is what we really hate about this. We really hate about the fact that sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. Because we want the cookie cutter. We want the easy, right? But you can look at examples in business where people reap what they sow. You can look at uh, sexual disease. You don't get sexual disease from faithfulness. Sexual disease comes from sexual sin somewhere along the way. And so there are ways in life where you can look at it and say, yeah, we reap what we sow pretty quickly. But then there's all these other ways where you don't. And there, these are the times when God delays the execution of his judgment or times when God delays the dispensation of his blessing. There are also, so far as wrong, there are times when God gives punishment or blessing in immaterial terms. So far, only thinks in terms of money and sickness and job and family. But is there not also spiritual curse? Is there not also spiritual blessing? Not everything the Bible refers to in terms of good getting great is material. So far, doesn't agree with that. Um, so far, cannot imagine that the righteous would suffer. And yet, how were we all saved? So far, can't imagine salvation as God constructed it. And part of the reason God constructed salvation that way, I'm convinced, is so we could at least see one example where that disconnect becomes clear to us. How could it be? God doesn't do bad things. God is good. And who does it say put him on that cross? God put him on that cross, right? And so we get some of these opportunities to see it so that we'll look more carefully at the other ones. But And sometimes there is. That's the problem with this sort of arrogance is it's not that it's out of nowhere. It's uh, We don't have time because we're out of time, but I was going to read from Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, right? Like, yeah, there's a pretty nice cause and effect you can look at right there and say, oh, I see how this worked out, why this happened. Now, we pretty much know Zophar is going to get it. We know. We know. We know it's coming for Zophar. It's coming. But, but, but Zophar doesn't apply the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility that he says he believes to his own thinking. Zophar takes this limited sample set, these stories like Ananias and Sapphira, these stories like uh, uh, the other side of the coin, people, Abraham's blessedness of receiving you know, many nations. This is, this is what Zophar takes and says, therefore, everything works like that. And then the fact that it doesn't, despite him saying God is incomprehensible, it blows his mind and it makes him angry. So it's a great segue into the worship service. So see you there. <laughs>